I have a special uh, treat for you this morning. I want to introduce you to my friends, uh, Diane and David Bjork. Um, their son, if, if some of you are familiar with the Adrian campus, their son, Andrew David, and his wife, Naomi, attend, our, attend that campus. And over the beginning of the summer, um, David spoke there at the Adrian campus, and now we have the privilege of bringing him here to the, to the Blissville campus and introducing him to you and allowing you to hear the message that God has placed upon his heart specifically for us. And so I know that you're going to find that, a, that a, very much a blessing, but I just want to just introduce them and kind of let them uh, and just give you like a little snapshot of where they're at and kind of give you a snapshot of who they are. And so uh, uh, I'm going to say that they are serving in Africa, Cameroon, Africa right now, but it's not always been that way. So Diane, why don't you share with them a little bit about uh, kind of your, who you are and, um, and where you've been. My name is Diane. And I was born in California, um, and Dave and I met there in California. And God called me to missions when I was about 16. And I said, well, I think you're going to have to change me, Lord, because I'm not really wanting to go as a missionary anywhere. I would like to get married. I would like to settle down in the States and have a house and family. And the, the Lord said, okay, then if you want me to change you, I will. I mean, he didn't actually say it, but... I understood that because in the next few years, he did give me um, a desire to understand people that spoke with an accent, gave me a desire to go to Haiti on short term, and then we went to France eight months after we were married to learn French, thinking we were going to Haiti, but the Lord actually laid France on our hearts. So we were in France for 30 years, very um, exciting and fulfilling ministry in France, and then Four years ago, we came back to the States, and we've been in Cameroon for two years. You can share what we're doing. And now, how we got to know, how we got to know this, this fine couple is as they were, um, they were in France for 30, 30 years, and, and as God kind of wrapped up that chapter of their lives, they knew they weren't done. And I, it, that, to me, is so encouraging. Is, is people that say, you know what, we're not done. God still has something else for us. And so as they begin to pray with God and to work with God and to sense God's leading, they were able to spend some time at the Adrian campus with us. Uh, you guys had developed many relationships there at the Adrian campus as well, people journeying, journeying with you. And so now they're in Cameroon, they're back, they're on their home ministry assignment, and they've been all over the country doing that, you know, and it's, uh, they're going to have to go back to Africa to get a breather, it seems like. But, uh, uh, but David, why don't you share a little bit more about what you do uh, there in Africa, Cameroon, Africa, and your, your ministry there as you minister to that group of people. Okay. Doesn't she have a beautiful dress on? That's an African dress from Cameroon. It's not a Hawaiian dress. This is Africa. <laughs> And don't I have nice clothes? This is African professoral clothes. Uh, I'm a professor with Global Scholars in Cameroon, Africa. We live in... Cameroon's a country of about 20 million people. We're in sub-Saharan Africa. We're black Africa, tropical rainforest. We go back in the middle of the rainy season. We get 11 inches of rain in the month of October where we live. So it's a very wet, very humid. I'm a professor at the University of Yundi One which is in the capital city of Yande. We have about 1,800,000 people in our little town. And I have 57,000 students at my university. I teach in the philosophy department. I teach religious studies there. We're working for a mission called Global Scholars. We put 
Christian professors in secular universities around the world. And we have 51 professors in 33 universities, 27 countries around the world as we speak. And we teach different disciplines out of a Christian worldview perspective. I also teach at the seminary where I'm teaching missions. So that's what we're up to now. Yes, exactly. You got your hands full, don't you? Mm. I know you're going to be blessed when you hear his message. I was, uh, I was blessed to hear it again this morning and, and touched even more. God even used your message, your, your, you as a, as a voice piece, to even grab, grab us again with this message that is so timely for us to hear. I'm going to lead us into a word of prayer, and then I'm going to ask you guys to give uh, Diane and David, uh, David as he speaks, a warm welcome. So let's just bow our heads and our hearts, and uh, let's ask God's anointing upon this time. God, uh, Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for bringing Diane and David to us again. I thank you for using him as a voice piece. I thank you for their willingness to use, to allow you to use them to speak your word, to um, share light, to share salt um, uh, into this world that is filled full of hopelessness and despair. God, I pray this morning that we would um, tune into that. I pray that we would lean in to hear the words that you have for us through him. I pray, God, that your word would be um, received on fertile soil, that our hearts would be open, that we'd be vulnerable, that we'd be transparent and, and contrite before our almighty God, you. And so this morning, please just um, allow us to continue to encounter you, uh, and especially right now through the spoken part of your word. And we ask all this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. If you would, let's give him a warm welcome as he comes. Thank you. Well, uh, like I said last, a couple of hours ago when we started the other service, I'm going to break a communication rule. One of the rules of effective communication is you need to know each other. Now, you know a little bit about me, and I know nothing about you. So I'm going to share with you, even though I don't know anything about you, and so I'll be breaking that communication rule. If I share things that don't seem appropriate, just write it off as something, you know, I'm coming from another world. My wife and I have lived in France. We've traveled around Europe, uh, ministered now in, on another continent in Africa, but we've never lived in the Midwest And uh, hopefully one day God will give us the grace to retire here in Adrian. But until then, we don't understand you, and hopefully, in spite of that, you'll be able to understand a little bit what we have to share. So put up with me and my quirks, and we'll we'll all do pretty well. I want to share with you this morning from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Now, this is probably the second most familiar passage of Scripture among evangelical followers of Jesus. We know these words that Jesus shared to his disciples. The resurrected Jesus comes and appears to them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, for that reason, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Everything that I've commanded you. And here's a promise. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Very familiar text. Now, this is a classic text for missionaries, but we've got to start with a question. 
Why in the world are we still sending missionaries to Africa? Probably for as long as you can remember, we've been sending North American missionaries to Africa. In fact, in the last 200 years, tens of thousands of North Americans have gone to Africa. Now, that's not amazing, but what is amazing is that that mission effort has borne a lot of fruit. And you might ask, why are we still doing it? Today, the church in Africa is growing. Our churches are getting empty. As we speak this morning, there are more Christians living in Africa, Asia, and Latin America than in all of North America, Canada, and Europe. There are more Christians living in the global south today than in the global north. And those churches are full. We're told that by the year 2050, some of you young people will be here. I probably won't. By the year 2050, 75 to 80% of all of the world's Christians will live in the global south. They'll live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. 75 to 80%. So why are we still sending missionaries there? In Africa, the churches are packed. Before coming on this home ministry assignment, we were in a small chapel. It was four months old, a Lutheran chapel. I was asked to preach in Cameroon. And there were several hundred people there. The chapel was four months old. The churches are packed. People are being converted. Most Cameroonians will be converted several times in their lifetime. They'll be baptized several times. The churches are full. So why are we sending missionaries there? Isn't that a good question? This verse, or a couple of verses we just saw, gives us some of the answers. First, the first reason is because Jesus says to go and make disciples. When you look at the state of the church in Cameroon, 70% of the Cameroonian people call themselves followers of Jesus, Christians. But those same people, 50% of those people, go to their traditional um, healer, their witch doctor, when they get sick. They wear amulets and charms to to chase away evil spirits. They're not living out of a follower of Jesus mindset. They call themselves followers of Jesus, but when there's a crisis, they run to the old religious thing. So something's happened. We've got people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they don't live like it. We definitely couldn't call them disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples. Well, part of, part of that verse says we need to go. But the verb of those, that passage is make disciples. The heart of what we're all about, what has Jesus called us to do, is to make disciples. And apparently, we have done a pretty poor job of it. Not only in Africa, but it seems to be the case even in North America. George Barna who's been studying the North American scene for several decades now, says that 54% of evangelical Christians, that means Christians like us, 54%, that's more than half, are doing nothing to grow. We don't even want to grow. It seems that we are content to be saved, baptized, and in a church. 
In fact, we've often understood missions as that. You, you, you send your missionaries and you, people will be saved, baptized, and put in a church. It's almost as if we were to rewrite Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. And we've understood, go into all the world and plant churches. Make converts, baptize them, and plant churches. And then the churches will make disciples. Jesus said, Jesus didn't say go and make converts and baptize them and plant churches. He said go into all the world and make disciples. Now Jesus also said, this is what's cool about Jesus. Jesus says, I won't build the church. So somehow we've taken his job. We've gone to build the church thinking that the church will do our job. Isn't that kind of screwy? And the fact of the matter is that we're doing a poor job of it. And this is not unique to North America. It's not unique to Africa. When we were in France, we began with a group of university students who said this about themselves. If you had asked these 15 guys that I got involved in a Bible study who they are, they would say something like this. I'm French. I'm Catholic. I'm an atheist, I'm a rationalist, I believe in reincarnation, one day I'll be married in the church, and if I have a child, we'll baptize the child in the church. Good, practical, Christian atheists. I didn't even know that existed. But for all practical purposes, we had people who said, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't believe in God. And I believe in reincarnation. And God called us there to bring those people to faith and make disciples, followers of Jesus, real followers of Jesus, beyond the title, following Jesus. So uh, the problem that we see in the Cameroonian church is something that we've found in France and I'm told exists even in North America. And not only In the Catholic Church, I'm told that in Baptist churches, in Methodist churches, in Lutheran churches, in in missionary church churches, I'm an ordained minister in the missionary church. Wait, all across the board, we have people who come to church and they think, well, it's just sufficient that I'm saved, baptized, and I go to church. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus was very intentional. So maybe we need to look again at the words of Jesus. He said, all authority is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So why does Jesus send his followers into the world? To make disciples. And because of that, we need to think a little bit more about what did Matthew mean? when he used this word disciple. Where where does that notion come from? Actually, the word disciple plays a more central role in Matthew's gospel than any of the other gospels. Matthew uses the word disciple 73 times. Mark uses it only 46 times. And Luke only 37 times. 
So Matthew, this is a key word for Matthew, and this is where we find this promise or this, this challenge, go into all the world and make disciples and, and I will be with you, the promise. So what is a disciple for Matthew? We, one of the first, the first characteristic of a disciple we find as the one who recognizes that Jesus is the Lord to whom he or she, she must submit their life. You remember when I was a young person singing the song, All to Jesus I Surrender? Do you still sing that in North America? All to Jesus I Surrender, All to Him I Freely Give. It's that attitude. And we find it expressed two ways, very uniquely in Matthew's gospel. The first one is the way that he uses this word, proskunine. Translated worship in most of our Bibles, this word is used 13 times in Matthew's gospel, only twice in Mark, and only twice in Luke. It's a key word. This word actually shows up in the verse before Matthew 28, 18 that we read. In Matthew 28, 17, Matthew says the risen Christ shows up and the disciples began to proskunine him. Not worship means to fall on your face in front of him. The resurrected Jesus shows up and the disciples fall on their face in front of him. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That attitude, Matthew underlines again and again. When Jesus stilled the waters, the reaction of the disciples, according to Matthew, was to fall on their faces in front of him. They recognize that Jesus has supreme authority over everything, including themselves. To fall on your face in front of a sovereign meant, I am completely unarmed, I am completely at your disposal. That is the fundamental attitude that Matthew underlines as the heart of a disciple. He also uses it in the way he uses the word Lord, the word kurios in Greek. Matthew uses this word in a very particular way. Mark and Luke are a little bit sloppy with it. In Matthew's gospel, the only people who ever call Jesus Lord are the disciples. And they never call him anything else. They never call him teacher or rabbi like they do in Mark or in Luke. In Matthew's gospel, he is only Lord. For Matthew, a disciple is someone who says, you are my master. Not only says it, but lives it. He's someone who submits their life flat out on their face in front of Jesus. They pay homage to him. Matthew does a very interesting thing as well in his gospel. And this is the the, the second thing that I wanted to really underline. Matthew discerns between true and false disciples. A disciple is one who calls Jesus Lord, but Matthew goes on in Matthew 7, 21 to 22 to say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. Oh, wait a minute. Matthew says the person who calls Jesus Lord, remember, is a disciple. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Jesus says, you can call me Lord. You can do miracles and prophesy in my name and I will call you an evildoer. That's strong language. You can call me Lord, Lord, and I will say, you will not enter into my kingdom because you don't do the will of my Father. For Jesus, obedience is more important than titles. It's even more important than prophecy or casting out devils. Obedience. Teaching them to do. You can almost say that Jesus is saying that the person who builds their life on miracles and prophecies and those kinds of things, rather than on obedience, is headed for disaster. What are we building our lives with Jesus on? That is a key question for Matthew. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord. Do we actually live in that way? In Cameroon, there are lots of people doing miracles in the name of Jesus. There are lots of people promising a lot of things in Jesus' name. They're after power. That Jesus says, the person who obeys me, that's the true mark of discipleship. Now, Jesus was not the only one who had disciples. You know that? John had disciples. In fact, before we had universities, discipleship was the way you went to school. The rabbis had disciples. If you were a rabbi, or you wanted to, to learn from a rabbi, you would choose your rabbi. Oh, I think I like his take on things. And you would choose him. And he would take you into his entourage, and you would follow him around, and you'd learn from him until you learned everything that he could teach you. And then you became a rabbi, and you had your own disciples who came to you and said, could I learn from you? And you would teach them. And actually, the university was created in 1154 when a several of these masters from Europe got together in one spot on the banks of the Seine in Paris. And for the first time, students came to learn from several of them at a time. But up until that time, disciples were all over the place. And people would choose Oh, yeah, that guy's got some clever ideas. I think I'll go and learn from him. Here's a difference. Jesus' disciples did not choose him. Jesus chose them. He called them. A major difference. Another major difference with Jesus and the other disciple makers of his time was that The disciples of Jesus are always his disciples. They never graduate out of the program. You never get to a point where you don't need the master. You're never the other rabbi who's now on a par with Jesus. Jesus has always got you in his school. And when you are accompanying others, they are following the same master. So there's some differences between the the discipleship of Jesus and the discipleship of the rabbis. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you this morning, whether you are 10 years old 
or you're 70 years old or above? Are you in the school of Jesus? Has he called you? Has he called you to learn how to think and talk and act like him? And if he hasn't, is he calling you today to become one of his followers, to learn from him? And if he has, what have you been doing about it? We know that coming to church does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Reading your Bible and praying does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Those are all very good things. But they're not sufficient to make you a disciple of Jesus. You know what's lacking in the experience of most North American Christians? And we find this in France and in Cameroon. The missing element is accountability. In in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says some very well-known words. He says, he calls Peter, James, and John. He says, follow me and I, follow me and I will make, do it again. Follow me and I, the fundamental concept in Matthew is follow Jesus and he will make of you. In that particular case, fishers of men. Follow Jesus and he will make of you. The concept of discipleship in Matthew is following Jesus and letting him remake our lives. Rebuild our lives. We learn certain ways of being, thinking, speaking, living, that Jesus has to completely deconstruct and reconstruct. And that only happens in a discipleship relationship, an accountability relationship. I'll give you an an example. We had been in France for about a year. We were living in the town of Strasbourg. This was in 1981. And we were involved with a group of people called the Navigators. We were building furniture for them. I had some experience in carpentry. And one day, Dean Trug, one of the nav guys there, he says, Dave, let's go for a walk in the park. Now, there's a beautiful park in the center of Strasbourg. Some of you might know it. It's called the Orangerie. Beautiful park. And Dean says, let's go for a walk. Now, the Navs have this thing. When they go for a walk, they want to talk to you about your life. And they always start with, now, I see this strength and this good thing, and God is doing this in your life. And then, after they've got you softened up, they lower the hammer on you, and they say, well, this is really wrong. And we started to walk, and, and Dean, he starts, oh, Dave... You know, I really see God doing amazing things in your life in this area and that area and that area. And then he said, but Dave, there's something in your life that I've seen. If it continues, you will not be able to be a disciple of Jesus. I said, well, okay, what, what is it? He said, Dave, I've noticed that you cannot say a sentence without saying, I my, me, or mine. All of your conversations turn around yourself. That's not Jesus-like. And he went down experience after experience, situation after situation where he saw that. And you know what? 
tears began to run down my face. I knew it was true, and it hurt. It hurt to have someone see my, my weakness that I knew was true. And Dean put his arm around my shoulder, and we walked for a half hour as I, I wept over my own lack of ability to control my tongue and to be like Jesus in the way I speak. And then Dean said, you know, Dave, there's some things we can do to change that. Well, first we'll start praying about it. At the same time, I want you to do a Bible study on everything the Scriptures have to say about the tongue and its control. And then I want you to choose a dozen verses that you can memorize so that you can think about those verses day and night, about the importance of the way you use your tongue. And then... Dave, for the next month, I don't want you to allow yourself to say the words, I, my, me, or I. For a week, I didn't speak. I didn't know how to. I couldn't figure out how to formulate a sentence that didn't have I, my, me, or or, or I in it. After a week, I began to put some things together differently. After a month, Dean said, Dave, you're doing much better. So now I will give you the permission to begin using those words again. But if we're in a Bible study or another situation and I find you using those words too much, I'm going to raise my hand and say, Dave, you're doing it again to remind you. And he did. And it took months of working on... Now, what right does he have to say that to me? What authority does he have to point out something in my life? Why, there are things wrong in his life too, right? Of course there are. That's why he also let me speak things into his life. Discipleship in the body of Christ, in the community of faith, is that we walk together. We don't walk side by side without communication. We walk together on the same path, learning to talk like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus. And that only happens when we're in those relationships where I say to you, look into my life. Tell me where it's not working. Tell me what you see because I can't trust myself to be honest with myself or with God. And some things I just don't see until someone points them out. Dean let me speak things into his life. The word disciple means a learner, an apprentice. What are you learning from Jesus? When I was apprentice carpenter, the first day on the job in Los Angeles, the master carpenter said, Dave, I will teach you everything I know about carpentry. Great. I want to be a master carpenter like you. He said, see that pile of wood over there? It was about eight feet tall and about 20 feet across. He said, I want you to pull out all the nails. For three days, I pulled nails. But you know what? After the first couple of hours, I broke my hammer. 
And the master carpenter came over and he said, you know, Dave, you think you know how to pull nails. Let me show you how to pull nails. You know, a 16-penny nail into a big, thick piece of a 4x8 or 4x12, you'll break your handle if you try to pull it out like you would naturally. You have to pull, you have to bend it over. And he showed me how to do it without breaking my hammer. If I had said to him, wait a minute, who do you think I'm stupid? I've been pulling nails a long time. I wouldn't have learned anything. I'm a professor at a university. I've been studying a long time. I have three master's degrees and two earned doctorates. And the more I study, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I know. You know what's the most frustrating thing in the world as a professor? Students who think they know it all. How many of us think that in our life with Jesus we know it all? We've heard it all. We've done it all. How many of us are willing to say, wait a minute, I've only just begun to be a disciple of Jesus, remade by Jesus, rebuilt by Jesus? You know what's nice about discipleship? You can start it at any age. You can start it as a young person. You can start it when you're in your 70s, 80s, or 90s. It's the one thing that Jesus is doing in our world today. He sent us to work with him in making disciples of Jesus. Has Jesus walked up to you yet and said, I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to let me rebuild your life. And if he has, you know, around you here in this church, There are other people on the pathway following Jesus that you could learn things from. Who are you tied into? Who are you learning from? Who have you said, look, I can't see everything in my life. But I see things in you that I admire, some things in you that I'd like to learn from. Would you please help me to better be like Jesus? That's what we're all about. Learning to be like Jesus, following Jesus, and accompanying others as they follow Jesus. Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. And he says, as we do that, he says, I will be with you. I, Jesus, will be with you even to the end of the age. Why do we still send missionaries to Africa? Because we've done a crummy job of making disciples. We've made Christians in Africa that look very much like our Christians in North America and in France. And we've done a crummy job of making disciples. Can I tell you a secret? I don't want to be a Christian. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus called me. He called me and he's remaking me. Has he called you? Is he remaking you? Are you willing to say to someone else, I, can't, I don't get it. Will you please walk beside me? Will you please speak into my life? Will you please help me to grow? I really do want to be like Jesus. That's what our Father is doing in the world today. Pastor.
As you heard uh, God speak through uh, David this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit is impressing upon your heart that uh, maybe the way you've defined being a Christian or this whole disciple thing is a bit off. And maybe you're sitting in here this morning and, and, and God is, is, is communicating with you and you would like to pray about it. If, uh, as we close here, as we always do, as we close with a, with a song, I pray that you would just open your hearts uh, and allow God to just you know, impress in on you. And if you would like to pray, come forward. We'd like to, the elders will come and pray with you. I would like to pray with you. I'd like to be a part of that with you because that's what this is all about. As he as he uh, spoke to it, and so please know that that is open and available for you even after the service. If you want to stick around and just talk or whatever, please do that. Um, this is why we're here. I think in the first service you asked the question, "Why do we come to church? Why are we here?" And I think that question right there gets answered in. A myriad of ways and a lot of them are off but like he said are we are we walking and journeying with one another becoming the people the men and women that god has called us to be let's stand and let me lead us into a word of prayer as we close with a song father we just give you great thanks for your word god for holding up that as we as we hear your word it's like a mirror going up and we look at ourselves and and we don't, sometimes we don't see what we really want to see or what we think we should see. But we see reality and we see sometimes that we're cracked up, we're not as pretty as what we think we are. And so this morning I pray that we would just respond to your spirit here today that if there are those of us in here that are not a disciple and, 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 and you're calling uh, us, you're calling those to enter and engage in that type of relationship. God, would you please give them the, the courage to come and to just pray and to invite you into their lives and begin that process of becoming a disciple and becoming a fisher of men. And God, I pray that if there are those in here that are, that are on the path, but what we heard today is highly challenging, I pray that you would um, help us to respond too. And so wherever we are on that journey, God, we, I know that you will, that, that you know, and I know that you're working in the hearts of, of people right now. I pray that the Spirit would find freedom in here today. I pray that the Spirit would, um, as, the, as the Holy Spirit is doing His ministry, revealing and inviting and, and, and helping us to have the ears and the eyes to see what you're saying. God, I pray that we would embrace it and live in harmony with that. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.